Welcome to Away Game, Golf.com's travel-focused podcast. Today, I'm super excited to bring to you my discussion with Oliver Horowitz. You might know him as the author of An American Caddy in St. Andrews. Brilliant book. If you haven't read it, definitely read it. Oliver has traveled to more extreme golf destinations and has experienced more interesting golf adventures than maybe anyone else I know. He seeks out these destinations and we talk about his four most memorable experiences, which believe me, are memorable, but also how he manages to put these experiences together. How does he find golf in Mumbai? How does he discover that the longest golf course in the world takes five days to play? And how does he realize that you can tee off at midnight and play a full round in Iceland? All these things and experiences are really, really interesting, and he dives into them and also how to do them. Okay, Ollie. Ollie, right? Ollie. Ollie. <laughs> Ashley, hello. <laughs> Welcome to Golf Studios here. Feels good to be here. Yeah. I would say that you have gone on some more extreme golf trips than anyone I know. Oh, thank you. Definitely more than the average golfer. I'm not as good a golfer as you, but I like to go to <laughs> cool places to play decently bad golf. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. All right. Well, we're going to definitely dive into that, but I wanted to start at the beginning. And you and I met way back. We went to kindergarten together. PS41. Yep. <laughs> wow. Two public school kids in Manhattan. Just. I think we were the only golfers at right? PS41. What are the chances? I well, mean, I remember when... Because then you moved down to Florida after, right? Like yeah. after a couple grades. Tenth grade. Tenth grade. And I have a twin sister like you do. Yeah. And I remember randomly hearing, I think from my mom, oh yeah, Ashley and Kira are like on the first ever UVA women's golf team. Yeah. I didn't even know you played golf before that news. No. Well, we didn't play golf in Manhattan. Did you learn the game in Manhattan? Because that's the first thing that people ask me is, you were born and raised in Manhattan. How did you get into golf? Yeah. I started playing the summer... Uh, up in Massachusetts in Gloucester. Got it. And so, but then I would start playing golf in the city a lot with my dad and it would be like at all the public courses like Van Cortland and Silver Lake and Staten Island. Not easy though to, to get there. No, no. We went to Diker Beach. We did play. One time. You Subway experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to add that. It's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a struggle. It's gritty when you're a golfer in Manhattan, but... You know, if you love it as much as we do, you make it happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it means more because yeah. you've just taken a subway ride with people staring at you and laughing at you for 40 minutes to get there. Totally. <laughs> I've become very used to that. Yeah. Um, so public school in Manhattan, and then you went on to go to Harvard to study film. What was the transition like from Harvard to then St. Andrews? Well, yeah. So I did St. Andrews as a gap year uh, first. So I got like a deferred admission to Harvard. I'd take a year off. They were like, do whatever you want for a year, but you're not in until next year. So okay. I actually applied and then went to St. Andrews for my freshman year. And then I played on the golf team there. And there were, I think, 30 kids on the team with under a two handicap on wow. the St. Andrews golf team. And so quickly I was like, oh, wow, these kids are good. And this place is awesome. What was your handicap? Uh, 1.8. Oh. So I played on the third team with my 1.8 handicap. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, we had no coach, no adult supervision. We met once a week at a pub called the Gin House. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and there were 30 kids with the two or better. So very quickly, I was like, this is um, an amazing place to go to school. And I, I fell in love with it. And I stayed on that summer before starting at Harvard. And I started caddying that summer on the old course. So the summer before you started at Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. I was 18, uh, talked a lot. And yeah. uh, everybody hated me uh, in the Caddyshack because I was American and a student. And, uh, and I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't go well for the first month of my caddy career. Really? Yeah. Oh, they, I mean, you know, when you're a trainee caddy, you have this like huge badge on your bib that says trainee mm. on it. So like everyone hates you. And, and every day you're getting yelled at on the golf course. There's always unwritten rules that no one tells you about when you're a, a starter caddy. Especially if you're American? Yeah. I was, okay. I think I was, uh, might've been the only American, I was definitely the only Jewish caddy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, gradually I, you know, the, the yelling became a little less frequent, uh, on your, on your behalf or on towards your me, towards you, towards okay. me. No, I, I don't yell at people actually. Okay. But you talk a lot. 
I talk a lot. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so I ended up going back every summer, even in, you know, in between Harvard school years, I'd go back and I'd caddy. And, uh, and I had a great uncle that lived there in St. Andrews, Uncle Ken. Okay. And I was 17, actually I was 17 when I started and he was 83 uh, that freshman year and we were like best friends oh. ever after that. So I, I, you know, in the summer I'd caddy and then I'd go up to Uncle Ken's house and I'd like help him plant green beans in his yard <laughs> in the evening and he was my best friend. How cool is that? Yeah, so I just kept going back every summer. 11 summers it became with uh, caddy at St. Andrews. Amazing. Yeah. How fortuitous that you couldn't get into Harvard right away. I know. It's so weird because I was like, at the time I was like bummed. I was like, oh, I want to start. All my high school friends are going to college. I'm going to Scotland. What the, what the hell am I doing? And I never could have predicted that fast forward, whatever, 16 years, 15, 60 years. I'm, you know, I still love St. Andrews. I've golf's a big, huge part of my life. And mm-hmm. it is crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. These turns that it takes in your life. And then when did you write your book? So that was, I'd done a lot of summers of catting already. That was, came out in 13. After 11 summers? After like nine. No, because no, I kept going back after. Okay. <laughs> you couldn't get enough. <laughs> Could not get enough. Um, and yeah, so that came out in 13. And, An American um, caddy in St. Andrews. Yes. That's what it was called. The caddies did not kill me when it came out. So that was a bonus. Did you think they might? I was terrified. Yeah. Terrified. Did I, they know that you were writing this book? No. Okay. No. Um, they did not. And You're like I, a Russian spy. I had this absolute nightmare that they would like chase me out of town with like pitchforks and like torches, and that would, or I'd just wind up in a floating and because you go into some stuff. A little bit, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a private place. It's a private town. I just, um, I just read the book uh, Perfect Storm a couple days ago okay. by Sebastian Younger, and it's funny. It's a lot of similarities. You know, Gloucester for Perfect Storm is very private. The fishermen there, it's like a, its own world. The Caddy Shack in St. Andrews, it's its own world. And it's hard to penetrate and it's closed off to tourists, quite honestly. You can take a caddy and have enjoy your your, your time, but you're not within the world. And yeah. it took so many summers to get in and I was like, have I just screwed that up for the rest of my life by writing this? But the first thing that one of the caddies said to me when it came out was he was like, I had a, had a golfer yesterday and uh, on 18, she said, I'm giving you 80 pounds because I'm not giving you the Hawaii 5-0. Oh, nice. Which is 50 pounds, yep. which is our slang. <laughs> and, I was, and he was like, so thank you for that. And I was like, ooh, I think go. I've like raised tips a little bit. That's so all they care if about. If nothing else, that's all I care about too. If nothing else, hopefully I've like increased wages like a touch. So what would you say, whether someone's read the book or not, um, what would you say was the most surprising thing about that caddy experience? Ooh, God. I would say the, in a way, the expertise of the guys, because you know, you hear the stories of how good they are, Yeah. but then you get into the shack and it is just mind blowing how well these men and women know the golf course, know Mm -hmm. the old course. Like we're talking, I think I know like the old course pretty well at this point because I've, at this point, my first summer, I've played it 150 times on the golf team and um, been around it a lot. No, these guys have been caddying there, a lot of them since they were 15, for 40 years, they've been caddying. They know every single break for every pin location on every green. They know every weather pattern. They know the horrors coming in. They know, they can tell you what was happening in the 1970 Open on the old course. They can tell you about every single bunker. It's crazy, and I've never since experienced that level of expertise from those guys in, in the shack. So that was mind-blowing and very cool for me because I, I wanted to be as good as them. Yeah. I never was, but I wanted to you know, try to get as good. I'm sure after 11 years, you know the old course pretty good. <laughs> well, one thing I always, I always felt was, you know, I'm an American kid. A lot of guys get over to Scotland to the first tee of St. Andrews. They want an old Scottish guy catting for them. And I was right. very aware they might be disappointed. So I, I feel like I always worked that extra bit harder Interesting. to win. I kind of had to because the first day they're like, what the hell? What are you doing here? You're from New York? Were you in New York yesterday? I was like, the nah, day before. I just got back over here. So, but then by the second hole, they're usually turning and they go, I'm just glad I could understand what the hell you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So that that helped me. But yeah, I always went that extra bit to try to win respect in the shack. And and I think ultimately the book is kind of a love letter to the caddy shack because I consider those guys oh, cool. part of my family. Oh, that's awesome. I just do. So what are three qualities that a golfer should never have? Like, or that Ooh. kind of 
pisses caddies off. Okay, so I've never met, there are probably lots of exceptions, I've never caddied for a guy wearing loudmouth trousers that I've then enjoyed for that round. <laughs> Prove me Number wrong. one, no loudmouth. Burn those pants. <laughs> uh, usually getting the first tee and having someone say, Oliver, I gotta break 80 today. Gotta break oh, 80. No. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, okay, so what's your handicap? Uh, 13. Yeah. I'm like, all right, so if you shoot your handicap today, we're shooting 85. How are we breaking 80 your first time seeing this golf course? So a number in the back of your mind. An it's unrealistic almost, number. Yeah. It's almost like a trophy. You know, it's like trophy hunting. I well, want to go want break to show 80. off that scorecard. I'm like, how about you enjoy the round? Let's do that. I mean, I think even if you're a five handicap and you have that in your mind, it's not a good approach, right? It's the yeah. old course and we get it. You want to keep a score. You want yeah. to brag. But it's more and, about the experience. And it's like, okay, we get that you might play well on the old course, but like it's not that hard a golf course from the touristies. And right. it, you might have a really like wind-free day. It could be super easy. It's it's so hard when someone gives me that number on the first day. Oh, um, the touristies. Yeah, well, touristies, yeah. What's that? Well, because if you want to play off the stones, off the white tees, back in, I think up until like five years ago, you had to... Um, actually get like permission to do that oh. now you can go back to the whites but most of the uh we call them the, the boxes the uh where the trash cans are in every tea box those are the touristies those are the yellow tees okay they're pushed very close to the red tees got it um so it's really funny i'll have a guy be like oh yeah oh man this course isn't hard at all i shot 38 and i'm like you're literally playing at the right tees, <laughs> Like that's <laughs> not fine. That anything wrong with that's that. fine, but you're not playing it at seventy three oh five that the pros are playing it. Right. So I always get annoyed when I, it's like, oh, this course is nothing. This is, this is easy. It's like, okay, well, you're playing it really short, and there's no wind today, and the pins are not Sunday pin locations. Right. But most people are not like that. Most people are the the opposite of that, and they are almost crying on the first tee because they're so excited to get there. Right. And every like, there's no way that doesn't get old for you. Or that does it never gets old because you're just so pumped for them. Yeah. Um, and I do have to say the the one thing that's extra pressure on you as a caddy on the old course is you'll be reading. A, let's say you got a twelve foot putt on the fifth green for an eagle because your guy's driven the driven the green in two. Yeah. Um, so you got an you got an eagle putt and you're standing over reading that putt. And you go, if I get this read right. And this guy from Arkansas makes this putt. He is never going to forget this moment for the rest of his life. Right. And I'm like, I so want this to happen. And that happens every single day. Every, you know, a lot of times like they make a par. Like, that's exciting. Yeah. They're like, oh, I parred the road hole. Like, they'll never forget that moment for the rest of their life. And you feel like that's on you. Yeah. So you definitely oh like put that extra, you know, that extra minute into the read. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One more quality that's sure. annoying. So loud mouth, um, yeah. having a number in your head. Oh, this is easy. I don't know why this is number one. Questioning the caddy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can't tell you how many times this happened where someone comes up short, they've just chunked the shot. They, they spin around. You. you sure that was the right mileage? What? Like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, because I just paced that off and there's the stick right there. Um, uh, I also had a guy who hit once and uh, the ball was in midair. It was on like the 15th hole, I think. And so his... His club's up, he's in his holding his finish, and he just says out loud, golf shot. About his own shot. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> and we all all the guys looked at each other and were like, huh? <laughs> like you can't do that. <laughs> so you can't, you know, it's it's tough to question the caddy. It's like you'll be having a great, great rep, you know, rapport with your guy. And then on the thirteenth hole, and I say guy because usually like my female golfers are wonderful to caddy for. Yeah. Like I've never, almost never had a tough female golfer to caddy for. Um, but normally the guy that does it like out of nowhere will be like, Yeah, that that wasn't the right that wasn't the right read. <laughs> Sorry. And it just, it's so like, it just goes cold. All the love, all the bond, like just breaks. It's really tough. Do you just kind of swallow your words and not say anything and just Yeah, take it? yeah, yeah. Y you do, yeah. you do. Um, the worst part is when he actually makes the putt and you're, you're feeling great about yourself and he goes, yeah, that wasn't actually the read you you gave me. Oh. Yeah, I hit a little left of that. You go, oh, why Why did you just say that? Now I feel terrible. <laughs> but these are these are very... These are very much exceptional things. Like most of the people playing the course are just so psyched to be there. Yeah. And so sweet. And just every day you're meeting awesome people from How around cool the world. How cool is that? Yeah. There's a reason that the guys stay in the shack and caddy for, for decades. Yeah. You know, every day you're with someone who's psyched to be there. Yeah. It doesn't, I don't know, there's that many jobs where that happens. No. No. Yeah. Where you get to experience 
someone's euphoria. And every you're part of the day. town. You know, yeah. you just go, you go in, I go into Munch, which is on South Street to get my like three pound, aka $4 like sandwich in the, the afternoon. And they're like, they know you as one of the caddies. Oh. You're instantly part of the fabric of the town. And, and that feels great, especially for St. Andrews where, you know, it's just like the loveliest town in the world. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, by the way, the book is An American Caddy in St. Andrews. Totally worth a read. You go into so many of these anecdotes and more. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it years Thank ago you. when you came out with it. Yeah. So um, I might reread it. Uh, <laughs> and you have played the old course. I have. What yeah. year did you play? Again? 2017. Made me so happy time. when I heard you were playing it. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it was a total dream. And so. I'm sure you told your caddy on the first seat, I got to break 80 today. No, the first thing I said was, do you know Oliver Harvitz? And they're like, yes, I hate him. He's the worst. I went to school with him. <laughs> when you came to Gatlin. Yeah. <laughs> so since then, how many countries have you played golf in? Ooh. Ooh, good question. A lot. Do you not? Uh, are you not one of those pegboard guys? Who definitely like not. Off? <laughs> Been to 50 countries and caddy. No, I, I haven't. But it, the, weirdly, the book actually did start um, me traveling a lot with golf because I remember when the book came out, we sat down with the team at Penguin. They're like, do you want to do uh, some, some book talks at like Barnes and Noble? And I was like, well, that'd be great to do one, but it's a golf book. It would be weird to do one in at Barnes and Noble in Chicago and have two golfers in the audience. It's a golf right. book. So I was like, I want to do talks at golf clubs. Smart man. So yeah, yeah. So I so I set up this um this kind of evening called a Taste of Scotland, uh, and I go around and I do um, caddy stories and scotch. So it's an hour in the evening of the best. My you sister know. went to one. With Your her sister husband. did attend with her golf pro husband. Oak Hill. Yeah. Oak. It was awesome to see her. It was Oak Hill, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. In uh in Rochester. Right? In Rochester. Yeah. And um if just she said it was great. Ah. It was a good concept. She's a good liar. She's a good liar. <laughs> no, it's fun. So it's like it's like my best caddy stories, what it was like amongst the old Scottish guys, and then we combine it with a scotch tasting, so caddy stories and scotch. I've now done literally over 100 of them. So you get to drink, talk, and play golf. <clears throat> yes. I always do my drink after the uh, after the talk. Okay. They're like, oh, have a beer before. I'm like, nope, you don't want to do that. You, you should do that, you, though. Maybe you should, but then you never want to be like, man, that talk. Last week was awesome, and I had two drinks. Maybe I should do three this time before. Oh, then you goodness. think it goes awesome, and it really doesn't. No. So I usually wait to like sample the scotch after the talk. But um, yeah, so I started getting asked by people who had read the book to to do a couple, and then the first one I did, or one of the first, was in Iceland Ooh. to the Icelandic Golf Association. Yeah. By the way, I also went on a, on a book tour um, called the Jewish Book Tour, which is a thing which is another story for another time. But I did 20 events on the Jewish book tour. The first one, of course, was Boca Raton. Oh, of course. At basically <laughs> not quite synagogues, but like JCCs all over the country. It was wow. hilarious. I have now spoken at the Houston Jewish Book Festival. Wow. Yeah, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> but the Icelandic Golf Association was like, if you want to come to Reykjavik, uh, you can speak to us. And my first question was, there's an Icelandic Golf Association? What? Yeah. There is. So before that, had yeah. you heard about golf in Iceland? No. No. No, absolutely not. I was shocked when I heard it. So at this point, you're still thinking golf like in Manhattan, the gritty Van Cortland, Diker, and yeah. then of course, Old Course. And then and then Scotland, exactly. Yeah, and Scotland. And very few in between there. But your mind about like golf in extreme corners of the earth, yeah. not there. But I'd love I'd love to always love to travel. Yeah. I remember I went to India in 09. It was the first trip I took by myself. And just every minute of the entire trip was an adventure. Okay. Like you didn't know what was going to happen two minutes in front of you because you could, you know, your taxi could get lost or you could step into some weird smelling thing in front of you or you could get lost in a bazaar. It's like everything was crazy. Did you just go to India with no itinerary? To see one of my best buddies who was living there for a year, okay. Richard Ross. And I went over there and it was like 10 days of just like insanity. It was so much fun. Ah. And then I remember my dad called me the day before I was flying home. I was like, hey, I'm at uh, Newark Airport to pick you up. I'm like, oh, dad, you, you screwed up. It's, uh, you get the wrong day. He's like, oh, I feel horrible. Oh, I got it wrong. And I'm like, you're, you're, you're stupid, dad. You, you got the wrong. I go the next day to my flight, and it's out in Delhi Airport. And they look at my ticket, and they go, your flight left yesterday. Oh. So I, I got it wrong. That was tough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I, I'd done a, bit, a lot of traveling, but never like golf traveling really. Right. And uh, so I went over to Iceland. I spoke to the Icelandic Golf Association. And then I realized that for a country of 321,000 people, which is okay. f fewer than in Staten Island, 
They have 65 golf courses. So they're obsessed. Yeah. So that's more per capita. That's they're obsessed. More per capita than any other country in the world. Is it? Yeah. They have 60,000 at least occasional golfers in this country. Oh my goodness. It goes soccer and then golf is tied second with team handball. Uh, because the Icelandic team handball team got a silver in the World Cup in 08. Wow. And I think something like 98% of Icelandic TVs were tuned to that match. But then it's golf. If we look at soccer and handball, the equipment required is very little. (laughs) Correct. And and the real estate required, very minimal. Easier to play in Iceland than golf. Yeah. That's crazy. (laughs) Weirdly, that's why all the Icelandic soccer players are so good at throw-ins because they all have played team handball growing up. Yeah. So, but why do you think golf is so accessible there or fun or interesting? It's because the landscape's insane. You could just stick a a, a very flat golf course anywhere in Iceland. It's going to look incredible. Okay. One of the courses has lava that you're playing around. Uh, There's a course where these birds that attack you if you go off the fairway into the rough. Oh, my God. They're called kriya, (laughs) and they literally dive bomb you. And you have to put up your club because they will attack the highest point. Um, They also, like, can poop on you, so you can do umbrellas (laughs) if you want as well. It's like I I wrote a Golf Digest piece about going back to Iceland and playing golf there, and it was like it's like golf meets Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's just the birds. And then the courses are public, I'm guessing. And the courses are all public except for a few. There's like one or two. I I think Reykjavik Golf Club is private. But you're playing with Icelanders that have just been through the worst winter of their entire life. You know, every winter is terrible there. It's like snow. It's just ice. Everything's like it's dark 24 hours a day in parts of Iceland. So you get to the summer and they go crazy. They play golf like usually once or twice a day they'll have dinner with their families at 9 p.m and then go play 18 holes of golf after yeah yeah and there's a tournament that i covered and also played in up in the north in accurary called the arctic open and uh it's an international event anyone can play in it you would probably win it ashley if you played it and it's 36 holes <laughs> That'd be cool to be a, a medalist or a oh, champion yeah. golfer in iceland <laughs> i think it would happen quite easily for you i did not win it oh. uh but both rounds start at midnight so it's midnight that's golf. that's crazy 24 hour daylight so when I asked you before we started recording, yeah. you know, what are kind of three of the most extreme golf experiences you've ever experienced, for lack of a better word, um, Iceland was one of them. Yeah. So what was the extreme part? The fact that you could just tee off at midnight or that these birds were attacking you? <laughs> yeah, that you was there. extreme. <laughs> that was um, extreme. What about golf in Iceland, you know, beyond those two things is yeah. wildly different? Or yeah. Well, feels- there, there's... A course down in the south um, that you have to get to, it's called the Westman Island. And I had to take like a ferry for an hour to get there. And you get off and there's like a volcano there that erupted like 50 years ago and the whole island had to be evacuated. And you're playing golf in like the, the view of the volcano. The wind is whipping off the ocean at you. And it's wild golf. It's so Icelandic and crazy. And you're playing with Icelandic fishermen who are just so psyched to be there again because they've just come out of the winter. Um, So it it really is. It's wild. And uh, and it's not hard to get to. It's not that far away from New York. No. No, It's like a four-hour flight or something. And I I hear they have a lot of deals because they want Americans, as they're flying beyond Iceland, to stop there. Yeah. So they're enticing people to make, you know, two, three-day stops in Iceland and then go. Yeah. They, if, remember there was a volcano that erupted in 09, like the crazy one in Iceland? Yes. And it, it basically canceled flights all over the country for like a month. Right. They were so psyched about that. They were like, that put us on the map. Like, that was great for us. Yeah. I feel like I've heard so much more about Iceland in the <clears throat> right. past couple of years right. yeah, than yeah. ever before. They're so friendly and they love, oh, and awesome. playing in the Arctic Open, you're just embraced by the Icelandic community. Yeah. And what they, when they don't play golf, they go to the pools. Those are the the geothermal hot tubs oh, yeah. that are all over the, every town has its own pool so it's the equivalent of the scottish pub or the new york coffee shop and when you weren't playing in the arctic open you'd go to the pool to yeah. like recover and uh you'd you know you'd meet people in the pool in this little hot tub with you who are like oh my chipping was terrible <laughs> <laughs> so you're totally embraced that's the cool yeah part. well when one out of every other person is into golf yeah. like chances are good <laughs> they really they go crazy in the summer that's they'd be the first nuts. to tell you there's a golf course near uh, where the ferry goes and it's called Vic Golf Club and I think it has something like 17 members. Oh wow. And it's nine holes and it's right by the black sand beaches. I feel like 
maybe one of the beaches was for a Clint Eastwood film. Okay. Yeah, but um, it's you know it's a wild landscape, and if you if anyone hasn't been, you should go and play in the Arctic Open because they would readily have you and be so so happy. Yeah. So if someone listening is like, okay, I'm in on a long weekend in Iceland, and they live in the U.S., you could totally do that. Yeah. So what would what kind of itinerary would you suggest for three days? Well, I would say you got to visit the pools. So there's like the famous one is the Blue Lagoon outside of Reykjavik. Okay. And uh, it's kind of halfway between the airport and, and Reykjavik. Um, so you'd go to the, the Blue Lagoon, you'd go to the pools around. You have to see this famous waterfall, which is all near, all these are near Reykjavik. Um, it's got some funny name. I'm, I'm not even going to attempt the name. I found that in Iceland, if you ask them to repeat themselves with something Icelandic, they said, it will sound different the second time. Huh. For every single word. You're like, you did not just say that. That makes it easy. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're very used to it. Um, one of the funniest things that happened in the history of Iceland was a tourist from, I think, New York like five or six years ago um, put Reykjavik, put his street name and number of his hotel into his GPS on his car okay. at his rental car in the airport. And then he put the he put one letter wrong. And it sent him in a word that has like twenty letters, twenty-seven letters, right. maybe. And it sent him with his one letter to the other side of Iceland, oh, no. a five-hour drive. Oh no! And so he didn't realize it, so he just kept straight. He's like, "Man, Reykjavik's really far from Keflavik Airport." And this becomes overnight news. He becomes a hero and like a local celebrity of the whole country. And he's like, "Yeah, you know, it was a little, it was a little worrying, a little concerning, but I got to see Iceland, so it's pretty good." So Iceland fell in love with this guy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess you go to the pools. You got to see there's. Uh, I think it's called the Golden Triangle. It's like three really cool, like there's a geothermal um, crazy thing that like spews up stuff like a Yellowstone, I think. Okay. Um, and then you've got to go play golf. you got to go play Accurary, which is up in the north of Iceland. you got to play Reykjavik Golf Club. you got to play where the Kriya are. So you got to go to the pools in Iceland. you got to play uh, up in Accurary, which is the the most northern golf course in Iceland and the second most northern 18-hole golf course in the whole world, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then you got to play the golf course with the Kriya, which is Ness Golf Club, which you will never forget that experience in your life. And you said that's nine holes? And that's nine holes. And these are all near Reykjavik. And Accurary is a 30-minute flight on oh, Air wow. Iceland, the domestic uh, airline there. So this is a legit oh, yeah. weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what I what I love to tell people is like, look, Everyone's got that buddy who's played Pebble. Maybe they played Augusta. They played Pinehurst. They've been to all the places that they're bragging to you about. But if you go play the Arctic Open yeah. in July, which is every year, you will one up your buddy forever. Forever. Yeah. You can come over with like three friends from the golf club and compete in the Arctic Open. And our tea time's like midnight? Yeah. Really? Yeah. They start earlier, of course, because a lot of people are playing in it. But if you're a foreigner and there's probably 20 or 30 foreigners playing in yeah. each event, they will guarantee that you get to play at midnight or later. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Oh, sign me up. I might do Pretty that fun. next year. Yeah, I, again, you would win it. and uh, That might be a goal. That would be really cool. <laughs> Just Ashley goes on like a world conquest. Of, yes. <laughs> well, the other one, the other one that I want to tell you about later, you will definitely win. Oh yeah, the one in Mongolia. Okay, so now let's. Is, do you have anything else to say about Iceland? Hmm. Pretty all encompassing. Um, yeah, it's like the other fun thing is uh, yeah. again they do this layover thing, so you can you can fly with uh, Iceland Air and mm-hmm. stop over for I think up to five days. And what I tell people is, let's say you're in Seattle and you're going to play golf in Scotland, you can literally fly. Iceland Air and stop over in Reykjavik, which is about the size of like a green on a golf course. It's so small. And then you just connect to Glasgow, for example. So it's Perfect. so much cooler that I think than having to connect through like Newark or Heathrow or one of the huge airports. So you could like literally go to Iceland, stay for five days for free and then go. And because it's such a hilarious, quirky country for a while, Iceland Air was doing this thing where they would put you with a buddy for your layover and anyone in Iceland air would be potentially like your buddy. So like, uh, like uh, one of the engineers, steward, stewardess, the CEO of Iceland air did it. <laughs> so your little, your little friend for like so four strange. days. Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> I know. It's so good. So this book tour invited you to Iceland and that's what really ignited your kind of interest in 
yeah golf in other parts of the country or yeah, it was, unconventional golf it was cool to know that thousands of miles away there are people that a were obs- as obsessed with golf as I was yeah but also people that knew St. Andrews and like loved Scotland sure that was cool for me to see like man all over the world they are so obsessed with the old course it's oh, so yeah. cool yeah. so I did another talk in Saudi Arabia Okay. In Udalia, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and I, I went and it was to people, um, a lot of, mainly expats, mm-hmm. on this oil base. And they had a golf course there. And so I go and um, it's sand golf. So the greens are called browns and they're wow. a mixture of sand and oil. And you're playing as early as you can in the day because it's 114 degrees at like nine in the morning. <gasps> oh my God. And because it's all sand, the uh, it's it's actually really awesome wait There's, is it co- compact uh the sand the sand and yeah. oil like it's does that really make a, cool what what would that green roll on a stimp probably like eight or nine okay yeah rolls well wow. and it actually checks up if you if you nip it right that's amazing so <laughs> it's really uh it's really a fun round and there are these weird sculptures that are like built up around you all of sand and like dirt and stuff and if you they have a water hazard markings uh-huh. um it's still sand but if your ball's in the red stakes it's a water hazard you pretend it's water yeah if you're <laughs> you get a green piece of turf that you put your ball on if you're in a bunker you actually have to hit out of the bunker okay but every other time you will put it on the green piece of turf and hit it and is it real turf or fake turf? it's fake okay artificial turf so the whole golf course there isn't a blade of grass on the course that's correct <laughs> yeah, there's only I think one grass golf course in all of Saudi Arabia. It's that's far crazy. to the far to the west, and that's like a big deal. It's like, oh, it's a grass golf course. Yeah. So my host actually on the final day I was there, they picked me up at six in the morning. We got in a car and drove I think four hours into a different country to Bahrain because that had a grass golf course. Okay. And we played in a tournament in Bahrain on a Colin Montgomery golf course. And <laughs> it's like, it was so amazing to be picked up that morning because it was an American and a Canadian guy. And they're both in head to toe golf stuff. They're so psyched. They're like talking about, you know, their the new putter they got there. And I'm just like, guys, we have to drive four hours now yeah. to a different country to play golf. But it could have just been going down the street, you know, in New Jersey to play. And do these guys love it? Like the Saudi Arabians? Is it... More of a, an elite kind of I sport? barely met any any locals when I was there. It was on okay. this base. It was all expats. Um, so it's a lot of, you know, it's Americans that are basically working in Saudi Arabia on this base, you know, for years at a time. And they have one thing they love there, and it's golf. And so the sand golf course, I asked one guy how much golf he played. He's like, you know, not too many, like eight or nine times a week. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the love of golf is there. And... Um, and it's great. And you're driving around these these extra these golf carts with extra wide and extra big wheels. So you can sure. get anywhere with these golf carts. Are they 18 holes? 18 holes. Yeah. Yeah. So Sand the golf. only difference between those golf courses and American golf courses or traditional golf courses is the sand or the grass. Yeah. Just the lack thereof. Pretty much. Yeah. You're hitting off a rubber tee on a little... Uh, like basically, you know, like one of them, you know, a Muni golf course tee, yeah. but everything else is basically like you're on a golf course. Interesting. In America. Would you recommend? I know you're high on. Yes, go to Iceland. You've got to. You won't regret it. Would you recommend people go to Saudi Arabia to play golf? Maybe not. No. Okay. So that one's, that one, maybe. That's not. like a you know. If but if you're you there, have to be there, yeah, yeah. If you have to go for a visit. You should definitely try to play golf. Okay. Of course. That sounds wild. Yeah. I would be like, no, that's not a water hazard. It's sand. I'm going to go hit it. Yeah. We didn't do a scotch <laughs> tasting for that talk. We did water tasting. You did? There was no alcohol allowed in the country. There isn't? No. Oh, I didn't know that. And I went to, before my, I was also very freaked out because they had something called MERS, mm. Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. It's oh. sort of like SARS, but it, it was an outbreak of it five days before I left. I was like, is, what? Is this going to be okay? And my host was like, it's fine. You'll be fine. Just go. I think it's camels that are transmitting it. <laughs> it's, so I'm really neurotic and I do not enjoy like the idea of MERS yeah. being anywhere near me. So I got a very intense mask. I forget what it was called. I think it's an N whatever, N94 mask. Yeah. And I had it on the entire flight from Frankfurt to Kuwait and then to Saudi Arabia. And I looked like I had a complete hazmat suit on basically. <laughs> 
I was making everyone else very worried. Were you the only one? Oh, the only one with the mask. (laughs) And then like a day or two into the, into the, the trip, he was like, Oh, here's uh, some guys with camels. You want to go pet the camels? No. I'm like, absolutely not. No. Please no. (laughs) My friend had just been there a week before for like a work trip and they had arranged a camel thing for them, like a camel ride. And the day before all of the people were like taking camel selfies one girl had her head in the camel's mouth for a selfie. What? And the next day in Riyadh, the front page of the paper was like, link from MERS to camels proven. Oh, no. They're like, whoops. No. But they were fine. Not worth it. They yeah. were fine? Are you yeah. sure? I think so. Okay. <laughs> but again, everyone at the talk was like obsessed with Scotland and St. Andrews, and that was very cool. Like, yeah. It's cool to hear people hang on every word about the road hole or about Bobby Jones's bunker. I mean, no matter yeah. where you play golf or where you've learned or what your background is, St. Andrews, you know it and you relish yeah. it. And it's kind of, it's very much the gold standard. I honestly never get tired about talking about it. Yeah. Like ever. Yeah. Because everybody who's like planning a trip, who's just been there, it's like, I want to know everything about their round because yeah. it just makes me so happy to to know they've been there. Will you ever caddy there again? I don't know. It's because now I did 11 summers and I've been back. I... I think the last time I came was two summers ago. So okay. I don't know, but I'm always I'm always going to go back. Sure. And I'm in touch with so many of my caddy friends, and yeah. and I miss it. It's like not the same being in New York during the summer now for me. I know. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I should be in 45-degree rainy weather right now. Yeah. No, I, I, I remember thinking, oh, Ollie, no, it's yeah. summer. He's not here. No, absolutely. Yeah. It just extended it out. I was like, oh, you know, I'll see you guys in November. Like all my friends noticed say goodbye yeah. to me in June. Yeah. Yeah, he's gonzo. Crazy. Stop the grid. <laughs> all right. And then you said that I would want to go to Mongolia. Oh, yeah. Why? I did, so Mongolia was last year. And okay. this tournament, you would 100% win. How do you find out about these tournaments? Ah. <sighs> I don't know. I, the Mongolian National Open, I feel like I, I honestly forget where I first heard about it, okay. but I might have been Googling just Mongolia and it came up somehow. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I even heard the name Mongolian National Open, I was like, that's the what only thing that? I'm now thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I tried to set it up for a couple years. I tried to pitch articles about it. And so I was actually in touch with the Mongolian Golf Association for a couple of years. Didn't work out uh, to go over there until last summer. And it got all hooked up. I did a piece for golf.com. Thank you guys for making that happen. So because of you guys, I got to go on a plane and go to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. There you go. We make dreams happen. You actually did. <laughs> and my dream going over was, I think I could like, like I'm nowhere near as good as you are, but at golf, I, but I used to be okay. Good. used to be good. And I am like, there's not many people in Mongolia who are under a 10 handicap. There was, I think like five people in the field of the Mongolia National Open under a 10 handicap. Okay. So I was like, I think I actually have a chance of like, like I could win this thing. Yeah, I'm on the plane going like, I think I could win this. Like it's not inconceivable because most people have been playing golf in Mongolia for less than five years. Why is that? Uh, Well, golf started, the first golf course was like 20 years ago. Oh, no way. In Mongolia, yeah. Okay. And the caddies would caddy on horseback at this first golf course. Wow. So if you hit a shot in the rough, the caddy would gallop over and put a, a flag next to the ball. And because in Mongolia, horse riding is like the most essential thing to life there. It's so fitting that the caddies would caddy on horseback. And what's the climate there? So during the summer, it's a very good question. During the summer, it's perfect. Okay. They have something like three months continuously of 70 degree weather and sunny ah. for like 90 days in a row. San Diego. Then few months later oh no it's negative 40 what yeah negative 40 and fun fact negative 40 in fahrenheit and celsius mean the same thing at negative 40 really yeah that's a fact i never want to personally experience in my life <laughs> <laughs> so it's again it's like iceland there's nothing to do during the winter the golf course mount bogged which is like the main golf course there where the mongolian national open is yeah that becomes a, a ski resort during the winter and everyone who works on the golf course just switches over to the skis the ski slopes yeah sure so you get three <laughs> months of just san diego pristine and then... san diego la jolla yeah and then you have siberia It's the coldest capital city in the entire world. Oh, my gosh. So actually what all the golfers do in Mongolia, and there's not many. There's 200. Uh, 200 200 in the whole country of 3 million people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And how many courses? There's four. Four courses for 200 golfers. Yeah. And do you want to hear my favorite named course in Mongolia? Go for it. Genghis Khan Country Club. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) 
and there's no t-shirts. That's like honestly the biggest travesty of that golf. Like, please sell t-shirts. It's the best name in the entire world. Does it have a logo? Uh, I think it's a guy on horseback, probably Genghis Khan. <laughs> in retrospect, that would yeah. be who would be on horseback. Yeah. Um, but amazing. there's four. Yeah. There's 200 golfers. Okay. And uh, almost all of them play in the Mongolian National Open. Yeah. Uh, if they're around. And it's every August. So uh, August 2nd to 5th of 2020, you guys can play in the Mongolian National Open. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so not, again, only 20 years of golf there. Most people have been playing less than five years. And most people are like between an 18 handicap and like a 36 or above handicap in this tournament. Is it still an elite sport there? or It is. It is. Okay. It really is. Okay. Yeah. Um, the nice thing though is that all the caddies, all the caddies are female and all of them play golf Oh, in Mongolia. All of them are taught to play golf by the different clubs. So, um, Bill Gay, who I met, who's like the coolest person ever, she caddied in the men's division in the morning and then played in the women's division in the afternoon. And the year before she came second in the Mongolian national open for women. Wow. Yeah. In the division. So she's like a baller. Yeah. Um, she was so sweet. Um, but there's, I think there were 72 people playing in it last year. Okay. And uh, in the first three rounds, first two rounds, I averaged uh, 100. And then on moving day, I shot 100 again. <laughs> nice. And I finished 86 <laughs> shots behind the eventual champion. Oh. It was the most <laughs> catatonic, horrible uh, uh, effort I've ever put forth. And I was so nervous. This was last year? This was last year. It was it like it could not have been more of an implosion mentally yeah. than me in this golf tournament. What made you so nervous? I got so I well, I was playing with the the general secretary of the Mongolian Nash, uh, oh. Golf Association and the secretary, so they were like observing me. I, they knew I was writing the article. Everyone's like, "Oh, this American guy's playing in it," and I hit my opening drive right down the middle and made a nine. Oh. I was also wearing shorts. I was the only one in the field, I think, wearing shorts. So the rough is very scraggly and it's crazy. And so on the first hole, I got stung by nettles. What's a nettle? Oh, nettle. It's a very English thing. It's like a stinging plant. It's like a cactus. Oh, yeah. okay. But it's it's really, really, really painful. And Ooh. then throughout the round, I kept like it got more in my head that I was doing so badly. So I kept getting even worse and everyone's trying to find my, my golf balls for me because they're so nice in Mongolia. So everyone starts getting stung by nettles themselves. <laughs> it was just, it was a catastrophe. <laughs> if I'm being honest, I saw someone writing down the number six, two, uh, on the, uh, on the 10th, 10th tee. And I realized that was my opening score on the front oh, nine, no. 62. Oh. I've shot two under before in yeah. my life. No, I know you're good. Well, not not on those four days. No. And the, the worst <laughs> part is my friend and photographer, Mike Altabello, who actually is like, I think he's plus two, like easily could have won the open and he's just filming me and, and photographing me. And he's just like, dude, like, what's happening? What is going on with you? Because was the course hard? That's the other thing. They had us for some reason off the tips. So it was, I think, 7,400 yards for basically a field of like 29 handicappers who have been playing for two years. It's like a macho thing. It's like, this is the Mongolian National Open. 20 years in, I'm guessing they're still figuring out that yeah. course setup is a huge thing. And you Correct. can't just go all USGA. <laughs> yeah. So I was in so far over my head. Yeah. It was getting worse and worse and worse. The My playing partner was very nice. He gave me calamine lotion for my nettle stings. Uh, was a 26 <laughs> handicap, and he beat me by 16 on the, <laughs> the first round. So I'm writing this piece, and I know I'm covering it for this article, and that's getting in my head, and everyone's just like looking at me, and that's getting in my head, and, and I'm just like embarrassing myself. And it was honestly like I don't understand what happened. I, I, I went oh into I went into like a blackout for four days. Okay, so besides the fact that it caused this just brain fog, yeah. how is golf in Mongolia different or special? So, or yeah. is it? Well, no, it is because again, it's like you're in this place where where people have only just started playing golf, so the enthusiasm is there, and you go to Genghis Khan Country Club, and you're you're in the middle of this like like it's the most. Like desolate's the wrong word, but it's just wilderness everywhere in Mongolia. Outside of the city, it's the least densely populated country in the in the whole world. Wow. And so the golf courses look out over these mountains and like endless fields and the plains, and it is the Mongolian spin on golf. 
And when they're playing in the summertime, they'll frequently have this drink, which is like your 19th hole drink, called edag, which is fermented horse milk. Oh. It's delicacy. That's not a transfusion. I tried some edag. <laughs> uh, and then in the Gobi Desert, the next day, I had some of the worst stomach trouble of oh, my entire life. Yeah, yeah. No. Um, also, Mike, my wonderful photographer and friend, had... Um, uh, a way worse experience um, stomach-wise, I think between the second and third round, and he had horrible like food poisoning or stomach bug, and ended up in a in a Mongolian hospital in Ulaanbaatar. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our guide uh, like took care of him and like got us into the hospital and arranged for the nurse to come in and the doctor. And Mike looks over at um, at our guide who's there. He's young, very young. He's like seventeen or eighteen years old. And he goes, he's delirious. He goes, where did you come from? You're like a little angel. <laughs> Why? He was totally delirious. So poor Mike. Poor Mike had a tough 24 hours. Oh, no. Cipro is a hell of a drug. Yeah. And uh, do we know why he got that sick? Uh, he just had something. He had some just food. Something. He had some yeah. food. Uh, uh, Cipro was a hell of a drug for me, too, in the Gobi Desert. Yeah? I borrowed some for this American family also visiting the Gobi. And I was like, hey, um, I went to the father. I think they were from uh, Ohio. And I was like, do you have any like Cipro? And he looks at me and goes, all of us have Cipro and we've all taken it. <laughs> but what my son has the last like three pills of Cipro, I'll give it to you. Oh. And I was like, you have just saved my life. So is Cipro there like Tylenol here? Uh, Cipro like, yeah, in the sense that you should carry it around with you. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was always wondering that when, when you were going on these extreme trips yeah. and you would tell me, oh yeah, I'm going to... You know, Saudi Arabia or yeah. the Mongolian desert or whatever. Yeah. I'll, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I always wondered a few things. Will he it's be like, okay? Will he be okay? Will I actually see him in a couple of weeks? Two, what does he eat? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you eat when you're there at these countries, you know, that are so far out of the city? Um, or Weirdly, in Mongolia, they have so many. The I think the number one uh, nationality for expats are Koreans. Okay. So you get a lot of hot pot. All over Mongolia. So it's all okay. good Korean food. Um, okay. uh, also, weird side note about uh, the Korean influence in Mongolia. They have screen golf from all the Koreans. Screen golf. Golf oh, simulators. simulators. This is where all of the golfers in Mongolia learn to play and where they all play during the winter. Interesting. So it's golf simulators. It's really cool. Oh, very cool. Yeah, everyone learned in Mongolia on screen golf. Wow. But for eating, you know, you're just, um, you're going with it. You're, you're going Do with you it. bring, I, I would bring like a suitcase full of protein bars. <laughs> a lot of protein bars. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you know, you just, you're, you're, you try to be smart. You okay. know, if you see a lot of other people eating there at a restaurant, it's good. It's fine. I think. Good sign. Yeah. Um, you, and then you, you travel with Cipro because at some point it's gonna, you're gonna get into trouble. You just yeah. have to accept it. Um, we were in Nepal on, on Everest, actually climbing to Everest base camp and we all got sick, and there's cipro-resistant bacteria in oh. the Kumbu Valley. So I ran into like the most amazing Israeli gastroenterologist couple that you said, did. you cannot take cipro. You must take flagell. And by the way, if cipro is a two out of 10, flagell is a 10 out of 10. And he goes, there is no room for finesse on the mountain. <laughs> it's like, okay, dude, I trust you. <laughs> I hiked for five hours back to him him and his wife's lodge where they were staying to get their flagell to give it to my friend Miles to prevent him, you know, maybe dying on the mountain. And was there golf on the base camp? <laughs> we we made it so because... Uh, I'm guessing you did. Yeah, I brought a golf club up on my pack looking like such an idiot for the, whatever, the 10 days to get up there. Mm -hmm. I borrowed it from my friend Mahendra who is a member at Royal Nepal Golf Club and it was a 10.5 uh, driver uh, I think it was Ping, and um, and I chipped it by accident, teaching some apprentice monks how to play golf at fourteen thousand feet. And so I had to apologize to Mahendra. I was like, "Sorry, I busted your driver." But yeah, I hit a golf ball at Everest Base Camp. Oh my god! I was so tired at that point, I could barely get the tee in the ground, and I could barely get up from having put the tee and the ball in the ground because the altitude and just yeah, it's seventeen thousand six hundred feet. Oh my gosh! I was just I was just a mess. I was so tired. And I'd like to say that I hit it like 800 yards or whatever at altitude. It may have gone 111 <laughs> yards low and into a crevasse. Nice. And then Beautiful. I tried tried to get the ball. And then my Sherpa guide, Gelzin, said, if you go into the crevasse, you will not come out. Oh, so no. I did not go in the crevasse. Leave the golf ball. Just left it. Yeah. Did you ever summit? 
I did not sum it because I can't afford it. To oh. sum it is maybe a hundred thousand dollars. What these days? Oh yeah, because it's about a month. You have to go up and acclimatize and go back and forth. Oh. To get to twenty nine thousand feet, you have to make a month of uh, acclimatiz- acclimatization trips. Um, and each one of those trips costs money. Just yeah, because you're paying for the food and everything. So it was whatever it is three three thousand dollars or something to go to base camp. Okay. So that was. That was as far as high as we got. I've been up a little higher. I went to Mount Kilimanjaro, which mm-hmm. is nineteen thousand three hundred and forty feet. Um, but yeah, I want to go. I want to go higher at some point. Yeah, just need to make more money that I can do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so you also have played the longest golf course in the world. Yes. And that's in Australia. That is in the Australian outback. It's yeah. called Nullarbor Links. Okay. And I think I may have just Googled world longest golf course to you find did. it. I think so. And it is, um, it takes five days to play because every hole is in a different town. And you have to drive 100 miles between holes to get to the next hole. So is that really a golf course? It's, it's partially a golf course and partially not a golf course. Is there continuity in the design? Yes. Great question. So sometimes you have, you will link up into, um, existing golf courses like at the start of it in Sejuna we started on the first hole of Sejuna Golf Club okay and then the last hole if you go east to west like we did is in this gold mine town called Kalgoorlie in western Australia mm-hmm. and that's a really nice golf course because everyone in the town are millionaires on the gold mine but then in the middle of the course there's like holes that are in like locust nests and like there's rattlesnakes and there's spiders and Uh -uh. like you're playing in the craziest like there was one there was one hole that went across an uh, active airplane runway what it's like the sixth hole or the seventh hole yeah i was with my friend miles you actively had to watch out for planes yeah there were planes taking off like 10 minutes after we went like little planes but planes there was one that goes by a gun field, <laughs> like literally you walk in front of the gun range. Uh, there's like all kinds of things that can kill you. It's but but I do have to say it was like one of the co- coolest trips I've ever been on because it's five days and you're driving through the Australian outback with a mission. Yeah, like you're not just aim like you have a scorecard that you have to get every hole accounted for or you won't get your scorecard signed on the 18th hole. So in those five days, you played just that one course. Yes. Like 18 holes, usually two to three holes a day, maybe four holes a day if we were lucky. And then you're meeting people who are just as crazy as you are doing the same thing. Um, we met a guy on a motorcycle who was just uh, like traveling on his motorcycle. With and his clubs on his motorcycle? He had three clubs that he had put into a pipe that he had welded to his <laughs> motorbike. And he was beating me on the front nine. Wow. He shot 42 on the front nine. Golfers are a strange, weird, <clears throat> yeah. very brilliant breed (laughs) yeah it was it was one of the coolest driving experiences i've ever done it's almost like the you know the australian answer to like route 66 that's amazing so were there directions to the next hole like at the end of each hole i think so you know you're you know what town you have to get to and once you get to the town that could have a population of like 40 or 50 really they direct you to the hole because that's what's in the town yeah Wow. Initially, the the course, I think, opened in 09, I want to say. And it was because truckers were driving across the Nullarbor to, you know, deliver their goods and stuff. And they were just gunning it for days without sleeping. And so accidents were happening all the time. So they opened this golf course to basically stop truckers from driving all night and all day. So it would give them something to do at each town. So overnight, within like a month, the accident rate was cut in half along the Nullarbor. Yeah. Golf is saving lives. That's what, that's, what, that's what we're all about. Yes. <laughs> I did hit a wombat, though, on the third night of driving. Oh. Yeah. Didn't do so well. No, no. It was terrifying. Would you recommend someone do that? Play that course? Well, I think so, because people have been to Sydney. People have been to Melbourne. Maybe sure. people have been to, you know, uh, Queensland or something. But this is not Sydney. You're in the outback. Yeah, this you're, is real. Yeah, you're staying at roadhouses where they get a paper only if a trucker has dropped off a newspaper from the day before. Wow. But everyone takes care of everybody else in the Nullarbor. So if you pull over to do a photo, everybody passing you will stop and give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down to make sure you're okay. Oh, interesting. Everybody takes care of other people in the Nullarbor. Oh. And you are meeting some of the nicest people along the outback. And when you get to Western Australia, 
and they hear an American accent, they go, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> like, even in Perth, they'd be like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Yeah. It's awesome. And in Sydney, you don't get that. Sydney, you could be in New York City. No, totally. So it's a wonderful way to experience Australia and you get a lot of street cred from other Australians. They're like, why did you do that? Oh, oh, the golf course. Oh, cool. Nice. And so is the climate the same on the first hole as it is on the 18th hole? Yes. Okay. Pretty much. Although you go through so many time zones that you just lose you track. Do? Yeah. I think we went through three time zones. What? Australia is a big country. Yeah. Yeah. So as we drove to the west, we just, we like the, the sunlight kept changing. It was, it was amazing. Um, and Miles and I, um, I think it took us five days. Yeah. To play the course. And then you're in the you're in the gold mine town of Kalgoorlie, which I mentioned before, and it's got the super pit, which is, I think, the second biggest gold mine in the Southern Hemisphere. And there's a golf course there. And all these, you know, you know gold mine millionaires are playing golf there. It's oh my bizarre. Gosh. Did you play there? Yeah. 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 Well, that must have been refreshing to be able to play 18 holes in four hours. Tried some kangaroo jerky, oh. some crocodile burger. Uh, I ate. I ate a lot of animals that, you know. Did I your body accept that. those things? Uh, in the limited amounts that I put into my body, yes. Okay. Usually a bite. So that's that's your secret? Crocodile souvlaki. What? Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't souvlaki Greek? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like one Greek person has got lost in the <laughs> yeah, outback. Seriously. Never to get back to uh, Athens. Seriously. So when you're packing for these trips. Yeah. Do you have any tips? Like, is is there something that you've learned over the years that you absolutely need? Well, I have some dorky things that I do for trips that other friends make fun of me for, but I get very excited but about- But you know they, they try it after. I hope so. Or I yeah. force them to try it if they're okay. on my trip. Okay. The first part of every trip is convincing people or at least one person to come with me. Uh, I was you, just going to ask you who, who you bring with you. On when I went to Nepal, adventures. it was with Miles, who did um, who helped with the video for it, and Vlad Weinstein, who did all the photos for Nepal. So usually it's friends of mine who are doing video or photos for me, but are also buddies. Um, but once you've roped in some people, uh, I, I own so many Lonely Planet books. It's just insane. I always <laughs> go and buy the Lonely Planet book because okay. I feel like you need the guidebook. You want to read up on it. But the dorky thing I do is I'm very obsessed with uh, buying lots of wet wipes before the trip. <laughs> I will go to CVS the day before. It's like the last thing I do. I'm so excited. I go in and I get like four packs of bi the big packs of wet wipes. And then if you're on a long flight, like to Beijing, whatever it is, 12 hours, you do a wet wipe shower. You go, into the, bath? Yeah, you go into the bathroom and just do a full wipe down with the wet wipes. I love it. <laughs> and I always tell my friends like, trust me, four packs of wet wipes. It will save your life at some point. Yeah. We use the wet wipes up Everest. You know, we <laughs> always the wet wipes. Okay. Um, another thing is I usually get four huge um, Ziploc bags. Not like the little Ziplocs. They have like extra large, like whatever, two gallon Ziploc bags. Yeah. And I'll put my stuff in those. Like all your clothes. Yeah. Okay. So that's, you know, everyone has the divider stuff. But this is Packing cheap. cubes yeah. are key. But I love these because they're cheap. It's like a dollar each. You can yeah. see what's in them. They're waterproof, which is really important. Yeah. In case you're By the way, anyone playing the old course should have one of those in their bag anyway. Sure. That's yeah. like a really good tip. Put your put extra golf clubs in there. Mm -hmm. um, so the wet wipes, the packing uh, Ziploc bags, really important. Um, trying to think what other stuff, you know. Travel insurance is important. <laughs> Seriously, you really don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are those are good starter ones. And do you usually go with three or fewer people? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. because then the logistics get ridiculous. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's hard to you know it, it's hard to get people to are just up to going to Ulaanbaatar. Sure. On a on a whim, like Mike had to fly back. Uh, he was only there for three days. He had to fly back for another photo job and missed his. Uh, transfer point oh, in no. uh, Beijing. So we actually missed the job anyway. Oh no. <laughs> but one tip I have that I think is a good one that I always do no matter what country I'm in, I always set up a notes page on my iPhone. Everyone's got the notes application. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I start meeting people in, let's say Mongolia, I get 10 phrases, 10 words, 10 phrases in Mongolian, whatever the language is that I want to learn. And I don't want like the standard, like, hello, how are you? I want the coolest, weirdest slang that someone can teach me. I want to know the equivalent of, yo, what's up? How you living, fool? 
Like I want that in Mongolian because I found that like learning some cool phrases like that where people are like, how the hell do you know that yeah. as a New Yorker? That really like opens doors. So that opens them up? Oh yeah. It's just like a hilarious opening thing. You're like, yo, what's up? But in, in Nepali. Even though they know that you don't know anything beyond that. Well, you get like after a while you learn some other stuff. Yeah. But it is it is usually like a way to make people laugh right away. Yeah. It's a way to get taxi drivers to give you a better rate on taxis. Yeah. If in Kathmandu you throw down with some uh Costa Cho Namaste, they're like, Oh, this guy's okay, not an, he's not an idiot. Okay. Yeah. They appreciate that. Yeah, you learn some curse words in Mongolian. <laughs> it's great. Uh, but I always do that. So I have all these like stupid dorky lists on my phone. Of yeah. like the ten in Mongolian, the ten in Nepali, the ten in Icelandic. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's a good tip. It, it's a way to you know to ingratiate yourself. I think. Sure. If you take that effort to learn oh, some yeah. words, people will give it right back to you. That's and so, as you've played all this amazing, weird, you know, unconventional golf around the world, have you noticed that there are common threads among these golfers or golf experiences, like? Does golf look completely different night and day all around the world? Yeah, that's a good point. Or it, are there these like commonalities? It does and it doesn't. Yeah, it's like it. you're playing sand golf in Saudi is right. so different than Himalayan golf in Nepal because you'll be at Himalayan golf club outside, in, outside Pokhara and you're hitting over an abyss. It's called the abyss hole. It's like a 200-foot drop below you. Whoa. Um, yeah, and that's the, f- that's the 16th hole. Um, really crazy, but you're doing, you're, you're at these courses and it's, there's all these links. So it it is kind of the same. It's like the same obsession with golf, the same thing of like you leave Kathmandu and the craziness of that city and you get onto a golf course and you can just breathe. You go, ah, this is nice. Yeah. So that oasis of Royal Nepal golf club or Gokarna is the same as like leaving the Bronx or leaving New York City and going into Van Cortland or going into Staten Island or going into, you know, Ferry Point, wherever. It's just like everyone's happy yeah. <laughs> playing golf. You're catching men and women at wherever you are that are just so like so thrilled for these four hours to be doing it. They're like miserably happy. Yeah. Yeah. And they're <laughs> like bummed, they're bummed yeah. when it's over. <laughs> yeah. I was just in New Zealand shooting a thing with Caddy Codes and we went and I played geothermal golf in Rotorua, New Zealand. Wow. And I was playing with two farmers at this yeah. golf course and they're just like so psyched they don't have to be at the farm that day. Right. So yeah. that's that's a connection that like like every time you're just for me it's the language that I can also bridge the gap. I know my ten stupid words in Mongolian, but I can talk <laughs> to them about golf for like hours and hours and hours. And then you're not a tourist. You're not just a tourist. You're like part of their inner fabric, I think. Ah, that's awesome. You know? Yeah, it's the it's the language. That's why I like doing it. That's why I like going to a different country I've never been to, not knowing anything, but I have golf and there's golfers there perhaps or hopefully there are and within an hour you're like invited into their homes afterwards. Right. It's like so cool. That is cool. And I don't think just every sport does that. And there's something about golf and the fact that you're out there for so long in such a beautiful green place or brown place sometimes. Yeah. That that extra that extra thing opens doors even more, I think. And so do you think that more often than not, if someone's in a, you know, booking a trip to this place, country that they've never been to, that if they did, did oh, if they did then Google golf, they would find it and just go for it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if people are, are planning a golf trip, they really should look at some of these places that are so far off the beaten path compared to a Myrtle Beach or whatever. Like They'll be surprised. The thing I'll tell people is it's not that expensive to get there. Sure. Like to Nepal, to Kathmandu, there were, we flew there for $650 in economy on a great, wow. on like Etihad or something. It was a great airline. Um, so it, uh, these places are not that expensive to get to. Once you're there in so many of these places, it's not expensive. Yeah. These are all very doable. So... That's awesome. You know, it's the other it's the other bucket list. It's the yeah. other golf bucket list. Beautiful. <laughs> well, awesome, Ali. Do you have anything else to add? Um, if people have questions about playing, you just go on my site, I guess, and email me, and I'd be happy yes. to let you know how to do some of those. Um, I guess my site's just oliverhorovitz.com. Just go there. But the it would make me so happy 
if people who heard this went and played in the Mongolian National Oh, Open, yeah. Or played in the Arctic Open or did the world's longest golf course because... Or teed up at midnight in Iceland. Or, do, yeah, do yeah. do midnight golf. It would make me so happy because it's not just a golf trip. It's like, it's a life-changing trip to meet people in this capacity. Sure. It's such it's such a cool experience. I hope people will, will try to do that. I love it. Well, thank you so much for chatting. Thank you. <laughs> and where are you off to next? Could be Bolivia. Bolivia. Yes, to the world's highest golf course. World's highest golf course. Yeah. All well, right, that's on tap. You can always, you got to come with me on one of these trips. Yes. I yeah. will force you to, in next several years, somehow. Yeah. Yeah, because I need a good golfer on my I trip. always said that I, I don't have a single hole in one. Do you have an yeah. ace? I have one when I was 11. No big deal. Okay. Stop talking about it. <laughs> That's a sore topic. <laughs> I've always said that I want to get my first ace on a downhill par three up at high altitude so that I can say that I hit a seven iron from like 300 yards. Nice. <laughs> Instead of the five iron that I hit from 100 exactly. yards. Exactly. <laughs> so yes, I'm in. I'm in for going with your you. First, your first home one's going to be in the Mongolian National Open. Exactly. And then we could have Genghis Khan vodka to celebrate. Let's do it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> well, thanks, Ali. Thank you, Ash. <laughs>